There are certain things that we simply cannot do alone, by ourselves, as individuals, such as have a friendship, right? You cannot be friends or be befriended without a friend. Another one, you can't play certain team sports, like a game of hockey or basketball. You can play by yourself, but you can't play a game by yourself if you don't have an opponent, let alone teammates. Neither can you sing harmony without a melody singer. Or you can't be in a band or an orchestra without other musicians. Relationally, you cannot go on a date by yourself. It's not a date if you do, right? You also cannot get engaged or married by yourself. You need someone else. Now, there are stories in the news lately of people marrying themselves, but everyone knows by common sense how absurd that picture is. You also cannot conceive a baby by yourself. Even using alternative methods, you need someone else. Though certain people may try to do things like these by themselves, you cannot do certain things alone. There's something else that I'm convinced we cannot do by ourselves, and it might surprise you. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. At least the way that God designed it to be lived. Everything that we've seen in 1 Peter so far, Peter talk about, actually appears to be able to be done by yourself, believe it or not. We can praise God, we can be born again, we can rejoice in trials, we can anticipate Jesus' return, we can love Jesus, we can set our hopes on him, we can resist sin, we can reach for holiness, we can fear God, and we can have faith in God all as individual Christians on our own without involving others. We can do so in the privacy of our own homes with our own personal devotions and praying and reading, watching live stream services, listening to podcasts. These days, we don't even need to walk out our front door. But the purpose of living hope, purpose of living hope, isn't to create self-focused, self-sufficient individual believers. And the goal of holy living cannot be accomplished while flying solo. How do I know this? Because of where Peter shifts his attention to next in his letter. If you haven't already, you can open up with me to 1 Peter 1 once more. 1 Peter 1, cannot live the Christian life alone. We'll see why. But as you find your place, I invite you to pray with me and dedicate this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word once again, would you open our eyes and open our hearts to receive from you. Receive your truth. May your spirit Work on us and change us. Lord, you know that I do not feel the strongest today, so would you work through my weakness and make your word go forth in power and that you are, your words are the ones that are heard, not mine. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the scholar Karen Jobes prefaces what we're going to read this way. It says, One's covenant relationship with God is never an individual matter. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. Peter shifts his exhortation from how to live rightly in relationship with God to how to live rightly with one another in Christian community. We concluded last week with these words from verse 20 and 21. Follow along with me. He was foreknown, that's Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, if you see those words, we see faith there. We've seen hope throughout. What's missing? Faith, hope, love. See, our faith and our hope, if they are true, will always lead to love. So it's fitting that Peter continues this way, immediately after verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one, one another earnestly from, pure, from a pure heart. As Edmund Clowney explains here, he says, Believers in God are redeemed from their empty and guilty past, and they are bound to their Lord and also to one another. Holiness, which we've looked at, holiness flames in devotion to God and in love of the brethren. Hence, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now the theme of this verse, theme of this passage, is loving one another. And the structure goes something like this. Having done something, love one another since something happened to you. All right? Having done something, love one another since something happened to you. I think the first part prepares us to love and the latter part motivates us to love more and more every day. Here's how I've phrased the, the major point, the first major point Peter's trying to get across here. That obeying the truth of the gospel prepares us to love one another well. Obeying the truth of the gospel prepares us to love one another well. Now there's a, a lot going on in the first half of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Let's break that down a bit. So first, having purified your souls. Peter is talking about something that we have done. right? Having purified your soul. Believers have purified their souls. That's talking about their inner spiritual selves. And when you think about a, a purification process, you might think of purifying water. There are two water purification plants in Ottawa, for instance, which draw water from the Ottawa River and then use what is called the multiple barrier principle. I don't know what it means either, but that's what they use, multiple barrier principle, and it consists of a series of treatment steps which remove contaminants from the water. They perform 100,000 water quality tests on samples annually, and get this, they provide around 275 million liters of drinking water for us each day. 
That's a lot of water. Now we should be pretty thankful, quite thankful for that meticulous process. If any of you have ever drunk some contaminated water before and then spent a few days hovering around a toilet, you know this well. Peter tells us, though, that our soul's purification process should be completed by now. It's done. He's talking past tense. Having purified your souls. Sin has contaminated every person's soul. But believers in Christ have been purified. So how have we done this? Peter says it's by your obedience to the truth. Now you may raise your eyebrows there. How does obedience purify us? That might make some logical sense, right? The more we obey, the purer we get. But it might not make much biblical sense, right? Aren't we purified by Jesus' blood? Right? It's not how much we can do to make things right. It's what Jesus did, right? Yes, absolutely, that is right. So what is this saying then? Well, I studied what biblical scholars say about this verse, and every single one of them came to the exact same conclusion. That this purification by obedience to the truth is talking about conversion. It's talking about conversion. So it's talking about when we get saved and how we obey at that time. In the gospel, everyone is told to repent of their sins and believe in Christ. And if we repent and believe, we are obeying these commands. And so therefore it makes sense that to connect that act of obedience to the purifying of our souls. It happens all at the same time. Remember, Peter's talking past tense. Peter says this not as a command, but as a foregone conclusion. Believers have already done this, having purified your souls. Tom Schreiner says the language used signifies a past action that has ongoing consequences. So, how are we purified? We are not purified by following all God's laws to a T. Can't do it. We are not purified by just doing our best to stay close to God, or by growing in holiness. No, we are purified the moment that we hear the good news of Jesus, how his blood was shed to pay for your sins, and how he rose again, conquering death, and we hear what we must do to be saved, and we do it. And we we obey through faith. Do we save ourselves? Of course not. Is purification our work alone? No way. Our act of obedience is trusting that Jesus is the only one who can save us and purify us. If purification by obedience refers to conversion, then the the truth Peter talking about here must refer to the gospel. Because that's what we obey at conversion. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. This isn't talking about scripture as a whole or a list of laws to obey. Peter's talking about the message of the gospel, the only truth that can purify us. 
As Peter just reminded us in last week's passage, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the gospel. Our only hope is in God. So how does... this wonderful gospel of Christ prepare us to love one another. After all, Peter says this is one of the purposes that we're purified for. Did you see that? It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. This is our purpose, right? Well, the gospel, how it does is it actually changes us. As we are washed by the blood of Jesus, we are transformed. We're changed forever. Our, our purpose on earth changes. Our motives, our goals change. Our mindsets change. Some of you have, have vividly experienced this transformation in your life. One of my friends recently asked a question on social media, and he said, how would your life change if God wasn't real? And it got me thinking. I concluded that if if God wasn't real, meaning that Jesus and the gospel aren't either, that I'd have no reason to not live completely for myself. I mean, no reason not to. I would be the center of my own existence. I'd be all about the here and the now, wringing whatever pleasure I could out of life with as much wealth or possessions or food or drink or tech or fun as possible. I, if I cared about other people at all, it would only be for what they could give me. It would be utilitarian love. If I had a family, I'd only love them for the love that they gave me. And I would despise, discard, or seek to avenge anyone who hurt me. But the gospel changes everything. It lifts my eyes beyond my own horizons. It shows me that I am not the center of existence. God is. And that I have actually wronged the most perfect, loving, central being in the entire universe. But the gospel says that instead of crushing me for my sin, Jesus was crushed for me. And right as that humbles me to the dust, Jesus lifts me up out of it. And he gives me a a way bigger purpose and causes in life than just myself. I now live not for myself, but to glorify God and to serve Him and to love others. Because the gospel opens my eyes to to the people around me to see their needs as well. We're in this together. And then I'm told to love as I have been loved 
by Christ. Having been purified, now we can truly love. We couldn't love each other well before. But now we can, since we've been cleansed from our sin. So our, our sinful self-centeredness is no longer an impossible obstacle to overcome. Which means that all of you are no longer burdens or hindrances to my goals in life. It means, nor are you just people for me to use for me to reach my ambitions. Loving you is actually central to my very purpose in life. As Karen Jobes says, Christians are to love one another because by obeying the truth, by coming to faith in Christ, they have set themselves apart from the ways of the world and how they used to treat people. Obedience to the truth of the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to doctrine, but must result in a transformation of how Christians treat others. What it has to result in. So what does it look like? What does Christian love look like? It is crucial to define this, because love means a million different things in our world today. Even most unbelievers might believe that what the world needs most is love. Right? But they likely have very different ideas of what that love actually is. The love spoken of here is not just liking or accepting one another or being friendly. It's not, a, it's not warm, fuzzy feelings or sentimentality. It's not romantic or erotic love. So what is it? Well, in verse 22 alone, I think we see four distinctives of the love that we're to have for each other. Four clear things. First, loving one another well means loving sincerely. You see that? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That means to be genuine or sincere without pretense or hypocrisy. Essentially, Peter is saying, don't fake it. Don't fake it. Actually love one another. Clowney comments, says, Peter requires love for fellow Christians as the great mark of true holiness. He is not satisfied with tolerance or acceptance, far less with formalized distance. He will have love, sincere love, without pretense or hypocrisy. So, question. What should we do if we don't feel love for other believers? Well, from one angle, we can love even if we don't feel like it because love is an action. Right? In the lingo of DC talk, love, love, love is a verb. <laughs> but from another angle... If we have received God's love, loving one another should come naturally. If we have truly received God's love, it should come naturally. It should be our predisposition towards others. It, loving one another, it, sincerity shouldn't be hard to come by. If it is, probably the best thing for you to do is to take yourself back to the gospel to seek to understand Christ's immeasurable love 
for you first. Because if you don't feel love for uh, you will not feel real love for others unless you first feel Christ's real love for you. And if someone really doesn't deserve our love, well, that's precisely the love we've been given in Christ, isn't it? grace. Second feature of love we see here is that to love others well means to love brotherly. That's how I put it. We see it right there. For a sincere brotherly love. You've all heard that term before, brotherly love. But think about what it means. It means that we are to love one another like we are part of the same family. As if we were brothers and sisters, because spiritually we are. We are part of the same family. And brotherly love is, is much deeper than mere friendship. Blood runs thicker. And actually we are bound by blood, aren't we? Look around you today. Okay, just look around at people around you. Do you, or... Can you see the people around you as brother or sister? Now, various streams of Christians have at times called each other brother or sister, right? Brother Jones, Sister Gloria, Brother Mark, Sister Johnson, whatever. Now, maybe that formalized this idea too much. It made these names just a, a title. But their motives were good. Right? They're on to something. Because the, the people around you aren't meant to just be fellow congregants or fellow believers or fellow church members. It's not what they're meant to be. Nowhere to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So they don't just share a pew with you. They share a family with you. She isn't just another singer in the church. She's your sister. Or he isn't just another random guy in your small group. He's your brother. If that doesn't have massive implications for how we treat each other, I don't know what does. The third aspect of love we see in this verse is loving well means to love earnestly says, you've purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. Now love one another earnestly. Some other versions say to love deeply, fervently, or intensely. That, that word for earnestly here meant something like stretched or strained in Greek. In fact, it, it only shows up two other times in the whole Bible, and one of those times was used to describe Jesus praying in Gethsemane. When, when he exerted himself in prayer to the point of sweating blood. Now, it's, it's clear from, if you think of that story, Jesus did not feel like going to the cross. He earnestly wished that there was some other way. Any other way. But ultimately, his love compelled him to pour out his blood to death. And it's this most 
earnest love that we are called to follow in the footsteps of. Love one another earnestly. I wonder, when was the last time that your love for a brother or sister stretched you? Has your love ever been strained, nearly to the point of breaking? Maybe another Christian hurt you badly. Gossip, slander, betrayal, and you found it a a real stretch to forgive. Maybe someone was really needy, Right? And they just made high demands on your time or your money, continually asking for more. Or maybe someone's got a habit or a struggle or a personality that just drives you crazy. Listen, loving people is not easy. But we're not called to love easily. We're called to love earnestly. Loving others can stretch our patience. It can strain our budgets. It can strain our hospitality. And maybe, just maybe, it should do it more often than it does. Finally, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. From a pure heart. So loving, one, loving well means loving purely. To love without being tainted or contaminated by sin. And since we, are all, since we all still sin, you'd think that this would be the hardest distinctive of love to have. Except that Peter just said Christians have already purified their souls. So the gospel has given us pure hearts. It's already given us this. We, are, we should still seek to eradicate sinful attitudes or motives from our love for others, of course. But we have to first recognize that Christ has already cleansed us by his blood. And we are to love people out of that pure heart that he has given to us. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And I challenge us all, including myself, challenge us all to consider, what are we doing to love each other like this? Let me suggest that you might start to foster this by getting well plugged into a small group. starting to grow closer to other believers around you there, sharing your lives together. And as you learn of people's needs, you can pray and serve and support and encourage them. Because if you're not in close proximity to others, you will not even know how they need to be loved. Then, practically putting this into further practice could, could mean signing up to serve others. Right, getting, committing to give more of yourself for the sake of loving Christ and his church and his people. There are tons of ways you can do this here at Calvary, and if you want to get involved, all you need to do is grab one of those cards and fill it out now. But the gospel prepares us for this. 
The gospel prepares us to love one another well, sincerely, brotherly, earnestly, and purely. And then it also motivates us to continually love each other, to keep loving each other more and more. And what we're going to see is that Peter, again, grounds what we're to do in what God has already done for us. And like, like he did with be holy because he who called you is holy. He called you. Or fear the Lord because you were ransomed by the blood of Christ. Now he says, love one another, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Here's the point I believe we'll see here. That being reborn by the truth of the gospel motivates us to love one another well. So being reborn by the truth of the gospel motivates or inspires us to do what Peter is asking us to do, to love one another well. Yes, why should we love other believers or, or even want to love them? He says, since or for you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, Peter told us earlier in this chapter that we were born again. Rebirthed. Reborn into a living hope. We talked about this, right? That when you were born as a baby, you received a lot of things inherently. You received a family, an ethnicity, a skin color, a hair color, an eye color, a birth date, a citizenship, uh, your own entirely unique DNA strand. And all these things have, have shaped your life's path and trajectory in so many ways. And in a similar way, to be born again is to reshape us to reorient us, to, to reshape your life's path and your trajectory in life. You are given another birth date, a new family, a heavenly citizenship, and you're even given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Your soul is reborn as the same person and yet as an entirely new creation. Peter says that our new birth is not like a normal birth. He says normal births are, are born of perishable seed, which refers to male spermatozoa, a, a word I never imagined I'd utter in a sermon. <laughs> but everyone on earth has been born from that kind of seed, and everyone born that way, will die. Right? Our seed is perishable. Perishable seeds generate perishable people. Science. Now, Peter says, however, that our new birth comes from a different kind of seed. An imperishable one. It says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So what is this seed that God plants in our hearts to regenerate us? It is the imperishable, living, abiding word of God. You've been born again of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. The New Living Translation puts this verse candidly. It says, your old birth came from mortal sperm. Your new birth comes from God's living word. Just think, 
a life conceived by God himself. So we'll soon see the, the word of God here specifically refers to the gospel. And not, it's not just God's speech or scripture in general or even Christ, the incarnate word. The gospel rebirths us. How does this happen? Well, think about it. Can you be saved without hearing the gospel? No, as Romans 10, 17 said, makes very clear. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's as, it's as we hear of the, the cross and the resurrection and we decide to place our faith in Christ that God's living seed springs to life in our hearts and changes us from the inside out. Peter's argument here is essentially, you have been reborn by God himself, therefore love. As Clowney says, the love that binds the redeemed flows from the love of the Redeemer. For such love to appear, the pride and selfishness of our alienation from God must be swept away. They must be replaced by a heart made new with the motives of grace. Peter shows how both needs are to be met. It is the good news of the gospel that is the means both of our new birth and of our nurture and holiness. Because God's love is the source of ours, the message of his love is what kindles ours. Christian love may be demonstrated by a hug, a holy kiss, or a helping hand, but Christian love cannot be transmitted that way. Christian love is born as Christians are born through the truth of the gospel. So how does, how does the gospel do this? How does the gospel motivate this love? Well, I am convinced that loved people love people. If you do not grasp the love of God in Christ for you, you will find this impossible. If, but if your reservoirs are filled up with the love that you see displayed in Christ and on the cross, and you are constantly returning there to be filled and refilled, a Christ-like love will naturally overflow to others around you. Because to withhold love for grace, for forgiveness, for patience, from others is to dishonor the love of Christ and to show love and grace and forgiveness and patience to them is to follow in his footsteps. Now Peter takes us somewhere very interesting as he closes this chapter. Read with me from verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, if you hear that, it almost sounds like Peter mentions the word of God and then goes on a little rant about it. <laughs> As if he is almost distracted from his main point of loving one another. But actually, what he says here undergirds and reinforces the command to love. Peter quotes from the prophet Isaiah, 
to support his argument, Isaiah 40 to be exact. And this is interesting because that chapter, Isaiah 40, was a message delivered to Israel in exile. They had been dragged from their homeland. They were suffering in Babylon. But God still loved his people. And he told Isaiah at the beginning of Isaiah 40 to comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then God promised to deliver them and restore them in very messianic tones, words that you'll recognize, like a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. And then immediately after that comes these words, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, how would that have been comforting? Oh, it was comforting to know that all the nations of the world, all men, all flesh, wouldn't last forever, and that all the nations of the world would not be able to resist God's purposes. Babylon would fade like late summer grass. For Peter's readers, so would Rome. Both of which, by the way, would have seemed invincible. Seemingly permanent in those days. As we've seen, Peter has already said he's writing to a church in exile. So he has the same message. All mortal things perish, but your inheritance through God's word is eternal. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. He is faithful through it all. In these verses, it's, it's easy to see the inherent warning of the, the shortness of life. Right? All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. All flesh includes you and me. Grass comes to life in the spring, and then it lives for only a short season. And it's glory like the flower of the grass. Last summer, I, I stopped on the side of the road one day and picked some wildflowers, which I brought home to my wife. And they were pretty for a short time. But let me tell you, they died fast. Even with water, right? They just, within a couple days, they withered and shriveled and started shedding dead flowers all over the counter. That is what our life is like. What our glory is like. Very short-lived, right? You may look really pretty, really healthy as 10-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 35-year-olds, but your physical glory will fade and then it will fall like a dead flower. Life is fragile and it's perishable. We all die. And life is short. It'll end sooner than you expect. However, while this is all true, this isn't even close to the point that Peter is trying to make here. You might have noticed 
some parallels between verse 23 and the verses that follow. It said, we were all born of perishable seed. That's all flesh, which is like grass. Right? For all flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But believers are born of imperishable seed. That's the word of God. But the word of the Lord remains forever. See, Peter's not trying to tell believers that our lives are short. He's trying to show that because the word rebirthed us, our lives are now eternal. These verses are actually telling us that we aren't just grass anymore. We're not just grass anymore. If you've been born again, your soul is imperishable now. Therefore, life isn't just a short-lived existence to be lived up or lived for ourselves anymore. All of a sudden, life is an eternal high calling. The stakes have been raised. And a powerful, eternal message has transformed our lives. We have eternal purposes and goals now, which is where love comes into play. In our immediate lives, it can be so easy to get nearsighted and think only about today, which tends to make us only think about ourselves. It can also be very difficult to love when hostility only seems to be increasing in the present. Right? Remember that, that Peter gave this command, though, to a church experiencing persecution firsthand. Love one another earnestly. Job says that Peter is saying, this too shall pass to Christians discouraged by a hostile society. He's raising their eyes, and he's raising ours, that any oppression or hostility that we may face is nothing compared to the lasting glory of the gospel. It will all fade, but the word of the Lord remains. Any, as, as hardship increases, it can be easy to, to batten down the hatches and go every man for himself. But it's in this very context which love becomes imperative. Because loving one another is a key way that we live out the realities of the gospel. And that is what will matter forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. And catch how Peter ends. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the word of God that he's been talking about, I've told you, it's the gospel. It's the good news that was preached to believers. Immediately following the, the grass withers verse in Isaiah 40, God told Isaiah this, said, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
In other words, God himself would appear and deliver his people. And that was good news. Now Peter is taking these verses and he says that in Christ this has happened. The good news was preached to you. God appeared and ransomed his people through Christ's blood. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's like, you've received this. And with such good news, with such a a new life and reality, we must love one another. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And that overflows to those around us. So I ask you, will you live this new life that you've been given in order to love others? Will you serve others faithfully, giving of yourself and your gifts or talents? Will you welcome those who are different than you? Those you might not naturally like. Accept them as they are. Will you completely forgive those who hurt you, even as Christ forgave you? When you hear of a need, will you give your money generously? Will you give your time sacrificially? Will you show up at doors and at bedsides? Will you rejoice with the rejoicing, mourn with the mourning? How will you encourage other believers to pursue holiness? It's a form of love. How will you spur them on? How will you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? The list could go on. Will we love radically, even as it costs us? Will we make sacrifice after sacrifice for others? Because Christ sacrificed everything in order to love us. Oh, that we would cast even a, a dim shadow of his love to a love-starved world. I want to end with this powerful quote from Pastor Ray Ortland. He says this, Loving one another is not icing on the cake, a cherry on top, or a garnish on the side. Loving one another is an essential evidence that we have passed out of death into life. Nothing is more urgent than loving one another, for all that means. Needed. Not that we love one another as we presently understand that, because our present patterns rarely exceed moderate love. 
but that we love one another in such startling ways that the watching world is astonished. Until we love with that impact, we haven't begun. If we start loving one another as Jesus loved us, we will embrace people who right now we are alienated from, and we will alienate people who right now embrace us. Love is both disruptive and creative. Are we open to the mighty powers of love? The only churches that will make any impact in this generation are those who astonish the world with a capacity for love, sacrifice, and forgiveness that obviously transcends self-interest. Then, it really does look like Jesus has come to town. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, work among us and make it look like Jesus has come to town in us, because you have. Lord, would you astonish us with your love, because I believe that will be the only fuel that will help us love in these ways. Show us what you've done. Open our eyes. And then empower us by your spirit to go and show a a reflection of your love to those around us.